Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Maria Cabré, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio Channel 132. I'm here in the tap room with Rocco. Hi, Maria. Hey, Rocco. We're back. It's a new year. It's a new year. <laughs> we are back. Dolphins are out. Eagles are out, too. So we turn our we attention to what? The Ravens? Well, uh, I, I got to say Detroit, right? They're the, they're the team. They're the dark horse team. Got to love Detroit. Speaking of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, what a tie-in. What a segue. <laughs> Who's our first guest? Our first guest is the head brewer at Holmes Brewery in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Along with owner-founder Tommy Kennedy, he has grown Holmes into a nationally respected brewery and a hub for the community in Ann Arbor. In the six years since they opened, they have garnered national acclaim for their beers and added a 27,000-square-foot community art, food, coffee, beer venue. They have also launched Smooch, one of the country's most popular hard fruit smoothies. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Nick Ponchamay. Thank you for joining us. It's a uh, pleasure to have you on, and I'm sure probably a delightful one now after a uh, national championship racked up for you guys up there. Go Blue! <laughs> yeah, go Blue. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's exciting. It's cool to be... I've never, like... I'm from the East Coast, so college football isn't quite as big, and I've never, like, lived in a place where college football was hyped this much, and it was, it was insane. I got to go out downtown the night they won. It was fun. So are you, are you a Michigan native? No. He no, I grew up in I know that, but I'm saying so. He, so you went to culinary school, but where along the lines did you pick up this love for craft beer? So <clears throat> like towards, you know, my probably junior or senior year in college, I had a, a friend roommate who was homebrewing with his dad a bunch. Um, so I kind of really started getting interested in it. And then I, I graduated in 2008. So like right when the recession was kind of right. hitting the job, the, the, the really the only job I could get in food service that was enough to pay my like crazy college loans was a corporate dining job for uh, St. John's University in Queens, oh. which you know, was not like a passion play job for me at all. So I, <laughs> right. I just like was homebrewing as much as I could on the weekends. Um, I uh, was... Um, you know, reading as much as I could at work, like just like in between stuff going on. And I, I they made me work the late shift at college dining. So I would just read homebrewing books. That's where I really got into it. And then I eventually got laid off from that job. And that's, I took a full-time um, unpaid internship at a brewery in New Jersey called Cricket Hill. Cricket Hill? Yeah, Cricket Hill Brewery. They've been around for a really long time. Where And where, where in Jersey were they? I believe they're... Fairfield, I want to say. They're North Jersey as well. Yeah. So you, you did the spin. So, like, what were you doing at St. John's? Like, just creating, like, mass meals for the students and stuff? I, I was kind of, like, managing. There was a union um, staff there. So I was managing the staff that ran the, the law school uh, uh, okay. dining at law school. Right. So you would do some, like, higher-end dinners for, like, administration there and stuff. Or you would do some, like different meal prep for like the teams. Cause they had a D one basketball and you know, they, they wow. were decent at a few different sports there. Uh, so I, I would, uh, I would, I would do some of the your time, John. No, no, no. Actually St. John's is renowned for having great D one basketball, but then they fell into a black hole for a very long time oh, till, okay. till Patino came back and is now the coach for St. John's, which is yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, they were a big uh, they were big East, too, I think, with right, Temple right. and Miami and all mm-hmm. those guys. Yeah, they were yeah, a back. big time program. Yeah. So I was that I was just it was like not a fun job by any means, but there was like benefits and they paid me a salary. And it's just like not, it, was, it wasn't it was what I could get. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you got into homebrewing at this time, too. Those that Yeah, very much into homebrewing. Yeah. And then you went to Cricket Hill. What were you doing mm-hmm. for them? So back in the day, I mean, I'm sure it's different now, but back in the day, they had brewers and then maybe one person kind of managing the cellar. And then the rest of the brewery was interns, unpaid interns, basically. 
Um, I think that's kind of what they had to do. And I think they liked the training program. So I was just like a full-time unpaid intern for like four months. I basically stayed there until I can get a job at a brewery and they just let me stay there. And I mean, I worked for free, so that was, there was some upside for them as well, but <laughs> I just, uh, did whatever they asked me to do. I was showing up on weeknights when they would have their bot. They had like a, a German bottling line from the sixties. all <laughs> And it was like a huge effort to get it up and running, uh, every, every few weeks when they would do bottling runs. So I would show up at, for their bottling runs at night and just do as much as I could there. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, when I did my first uh, few trips to Cigar City as internship, it was unpaid. And then, obviously, I joined the ranks at the bottom. You know, But it, I think back in those days, it was like ten fifty an hour. I mean, it's like when you, <laughs> when you stage at a yeah. restaurant. When yeah. I lived in New York, I saw well, Sorry, North Bergen. Yeah. Uh, I staged at a bunch of restaurants, and they just have you there for three days working your ass off, and then they tell you, oh, well, you know. Thanks for the, thanks for the help, right. but we don't need you. <laughs> well, because they, yeah. they have a unending stack of resumes from people so they don't care Mm -hmm. they want you know they want anyone to come in through their doors and and give a helping hand yeah a lot different nowadays to wash dishes at places like that you know and in hindsight i probably would have skipped culinary school if i really wanted to get into food and just try to volunteer or get low-paying jobs at the higher-end restaurants around town um but you know i tell people when they ask me because i have a few friends with older kids and they're like, oh, I want to go to culinary school. I'm like, no, man, just try to yeah. work somewhere. Try yeah. to work somewhere. Yeah, I think- learn your way through the kitchen. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot. It's a lot different nowadays, for sure. When along the lines did you meet Tommy Kennedy? So um, after Cricket Hill, I, I was uh, I got a job at a little brew pub in Manhattan. I worked there for a year, and then I got a job offer. Uh, to move up to Michigan, uh, Right Brain Brewery in Traverse City, Michigan, which is like a vacation resorty town on Lake Michigan in in the north part of Michigan. And I was there for four years as a head brewer and was kind of looking for something else. And then Tommy had posted on a pro brewer and I met with him and talked with him. And um, it was it was a very good connection right off the bat. He was kind of looking for someone to grow the business with right from the start before he opened and somebody that was the right fit and personality wise, we just really got along. So <clears throat> once he closed on the property in Ann Arbor for homes, I moved, I left my job at right brain and moved down in uh, February of 2016. Oh, wow. So yeah. he already had the vision for the brewery, knew what he wanted. He just wanted to have someone. <clears throat> I think he was, he was, you know, he was in home healthcare with his brother. He's a U of M grad. He had like a few concepts, business concepts that he wanted to branch out on his own with. And, you know, craft brewery is what they were talking about at the time. And he just like kind of really liked that idea. So he started running with it and building a business plan. I was looking at a bunch of different properties. And the one he found, the one we have in Ann Arbor was just, it was like, you know, it, there's a there's just so much process in opening a brewery. because it's You got to buy the property, but you also you have to get, you also have to get like approval from the city that you right. can open there that the neighbors got to be okay with it. There's town meetings and all that. So like, <clears throat> yeah, he, he kind of had a basic idea of what he wanted. The space was a really old kind of boxy cement building. Um, so it was, a, it was a definitely like a lot of planning that was going to have to come ahead of it, but he knew that that was the property he wanted and he didn't want to pull the trigger on me moving down until he actually owned the property, which is fair enough. Right. So yeah, he, he kind of knew that he wanted to do a brewery, but he, I don't think he knew what direction we were going yet or anything like that. Right. What, what was your initial setup at, at you know in the at, in the brewery in the beginning of everything? <clears throat> so we um, it's it's a ten barrel brew house. It's still there. It's, we still use it. There's a few ten barrel tanks and a twenty barrel tank. We basically like it's a really old building. Um, it's from the 40s, I believe. It's all cement. So we kind of had to put the tanks in and then build around them. So like at this point, they're not really going anywhere. There's just walls built in right. front of them, and kind of is what it is. Um, <clears throat> So that that's the original setup, just a steam system. We couldn't put in a, a grain mill or any kind of grain auger system because the Ann Arbor City regulations around milling, they, they don't understand the difference between milling flour and and milling for beer. So they thought like, you they thought you guys were gonna create bombs. Explosion stuff, yeah, exactly. So we <laughs> So we have to get everything pre milled there. It's 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 we squeaked by and, and got the necessary equipment in there. It's definitely not the perfect setup, but you know, it works for us. Did you know that, Rocco? 
Is that is that true? That's an absolute truth. Do you know really? that we have to have like our grain mill room? I mean, it has a metal roll down door on it, but it has to be built for explosion proof because fl- flour dust is highly flammable, flammable and combustible. Yeah. yeah. And could actually yeah. cause oh a, a God, massive explosion. Crazy. So yeah, it's it, yeah. You wouldn't think if you, you ever see like videos of like grain silos like collapsing. Mm-hmm. Often at some point they catch on fire because there's like static electricity that starts to build and the dust catches on fire and then it's just like a huge. Boom. Oh my God! <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. You didn't know nuts. that? That's nuts. Well, I'm the one that fucking mills in. <laughs> you have, I mean, it, it, uh, there's a lot of things that lead into that. It's just not going to blow up on uh, you like pay. that. Yeah, yeah, hazard yeah. pay. Well, yeah. I just I don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, so does that mean you guys had to have all your stuff pre-milled? Yes. And then you matched it? We still have everything. Everything is still pre-milled. Really? Because really? we have a new facility, but we still have the same brew house, and we're shipping work in a box truck to the other facility. right. right. So, yeah. so they still haven't changed that law yet. That's interesting. Eventually, I, we we just don't have a, we haven't got the second brew house in the new facility. Eventually, we're going to be doing that. I'm hoping that the, the mill isn't as much. <laughs> right. Seven years, so I don't know. How did you guys start off? Did you guys start off with core beers? I mean, like, and mm-hmm. what is that core beer lineup that you guys had? If you had that, and like, what are your guests at the brew pub drinking the most of? Would you say? So we, we came in at a good time in, in Michigan. You know, New England IPA was uh, on the East Coast was, was getting really well recognized at, at that point in 2016. But in Michigan, you had maybe one or two breweries that were just starting to do it. So and we had, you know, obviously me being from the East Coast and spent we spent a decent amount of time on the East Coast before we opened. Um, we really wanted to, like, knock it out of the park with just a standard New England IPA. So we kind of opened with that. Outside of that, our concentration was hoppy and sour beer when we opened. We, we weren't really going to mess around with stouts too much or anything outside of that spectrum, but we really kind of opened it up since then. So you know, we have a beer called Same, Same, Different, which is our, our like as close as we have to a flagship IPA. We don't really distribute homes, right? so I don't know if we have flagships. We, we've got that luxury of just like stuff coming in and out all the time. Um, but we have opened it up to a lot of barrel-aged stouts, um, we, we started with mixed culture sours and we're still doing mixed culture sours. And, you know, even though like the desire for that style of beer has come down a little bit, we're just picking our, you know, our place and being very specific about what we release a few times a year with mixed culture. And then we do a lot of fruited kettle sours, heavily fruited beers. Right. Um, and a little bit in between we, we've gotten into lagers quite a bit in the past few years as a lot of breweries have. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a resurgence in loggers, as we see, and I and I run the numbers here in the tap room all the time, and it's it's interesting to see like number one sellers are loggers. Yeah, uh, for us, it's that and IPA is head yep. and head with us. Yep, yep, yeah. <clears throat> and actually, we just brought it back in amber ale, which we hadn't done in three years, but since we made a switch in distribution, and our new distributor specifically asked for this beer, we brought it back, and immediately it it jump to the forefront like it was kind of yeah. it was kind of unexpected and it's a great beer but yeah. i did not expect it to go straight to the top you know what i mean it was yeah. just kind of blew my mind yeah you asked me a few years ago if amber ale would ever make a comeback i don't think i would have thought that was a possibility but it feels like maybe we're, we're correcting a little bit people still like the crazier stuff but like yeah. we went so intense in every way for right. a while there right <clears throat> that maybe people are coming back a little bit. I think there's still room for the big crazy stuff, but not as much as it used to be. You know what I mean? Yeah, for yeah, sure. not as much as it used to be, right? And I agree. I think we went on such a tangent with the stouts and the sours and stuff like that that I think people came kind of come back around. Obviously, there, there's still that area for those beers that you know what I call culinary or dessert beers. Yeah. Um there's still a major area for that, but I think. What I see now is a lot of people walking in going, hey, can I just get an IPA? Can I get an Amber? Can I get a Hefeweizen? Yeah. You know, can I get yeah. a lager? And, and that's, you know, oh, you got sours too? Okay, I'll take a five ounce of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or a stout. So that's, that's where I see that we're at down here at least. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And I think you need to start catering to your more casual beer drinker, not necessarily the huge beer nerd. Like yeah. you have to cater to, to that and be, and be more hospitable to a bigger wider range of audience at this point I, I would i would totally agree with that so then i mean i think you had mentioned obviously a new facility and i know at the end of 2021 tommy opened a twenty-seven thousand square foot campus across three buildings like what 
what is the campus and and how did it all come about? So pretty soon after we, I mean, like within four months of opening the pub, we were just like, this is not enough. Like right. the amount of brewing capacity we had there was just not enough. So we actually, I think he closed on the building within six months of us opening our original location. It just wow. took a very long time to, there was renters who had agreements that, that, you know, their leases had to run up. We had to get contractors in and then the contractors started working and the pandemic happened. So it was a very, very slow process but basically what it is it's a mile and a half away from our uh original campus it's in what you would call the industrial part of ann arbor even though like it doesn't look like any other normal industrial it's ann arbor is not really doesn't have a lot of industrial neighborhoods or anything so it's it it feels pretty different it's still um it's not like all cement and buildings like there's it's it's there's it's like a nicer looking part of town even though it does have some industrial spaces and we have yeah, like you said, we have three properties. We completely renovated the whole thing. And wow. uh, one of the buildings now is Dozer Coffee, which is our sister company. It's a cafe and coffee roaster. Attached to that is another bar for um, homes. <clears throat> and then there's an art gallery space in there. And then the biggest building on the property is basically a production facility for the brewery. So we, like I said before, we're brewing and shipping work in a box truck down the street and filling fermenters, gravity filling fermenters basically with a forklift. Um, but a lot more space, higher ceilings are, t- you know, we have 40, t- 40 barrel tanks, 60 barrel tanks, as opposed to 20 and tens, a lot more equipment, a canning line, all that. So how many, how many trips a day are you taking with a box truck? We're usually doing only two brews a day. So we'll take two, but our, you know, we're, we just brewed a 40 barrel batch and it took Wednesday and Thursday, four trips all together. So they're driving, you know, there's an IBC in a box truck. They fill it, they drive it over there. They lift it up in the air gravity fill into the tank they drive it back they fill it again they bring so it's actually I, I mean that's not an uncommon practice because actually like I, i've seen it done at other breweries like when i used when i visited patrick rue when he was at the brewery you know what i mean mm-hmm. out in out in cali uh they would actually take wort from their main production facility and take it over to their sour production and they would take it in these large metal squares yeah, basically in gravity it. fill you know what i mean and yeah. It, it's not an uncommon practice. I mean, it's it's a lot of work. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and it's like a good way to avoid investing money until there's like proof of concept there that like it's going to be worth getting it. You know, because brew houses these days are I don't you know three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand dollars, whatever it is. So like, yeah, I mean, you, you gotta you gotta think about the cost of stainless, and obviously from when you guys first opened, and even when I first opened, the cost of a brew house is probably three or five fold more than what it used to be. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy, and then it's all the other stuff that comes with it. You have to have a full, you know, pretty pretty heavy duty boiler if yep. you're using a steam system. Yep. Um, there's other tanks that got to, that have to accompany it. But, you know, it's there's a lot of upside to having it. If we could just have one now, I would do it. But like for now, it's we can expand our capacity with the same ten barrel brew house that we started with. Right, and exactly. So why why, why not? Why not do it? So do you guys actually lease space out on the uh, on the campus to other people? Right now, no, it's all ours. And then the third building I forgot to mention is storage on part of it. And then uh, um, we're, we're using the other two spaces. They're, they're basically completely renovated this time for event space. So we've kind of opened up a new another branch of our company that's catering and events as a whole new kind of market. So we just hosted this spring or early summer. We hosted um, GM did a big Chrysler event right. for, uh, you know, People, uh, journalists and, and people reporting on the car industry. So they did a, a whole rollout of a new vehicle at our campus. We had cars parked inside the building and outside the building and people were doing test rides. So like, it's just a lot of opportunity there to do stuff. We've done weddings. Oh, wow. Your uh, events. It's yeah, it's fun. So there's no, we're not leasing any of that space yet. Who knows what's going to happen in the future, but right now we're kind of really leaning into events and being more of like a hospitality company as opposed to just a brewery. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's expanding outside the horizons, which I think is what's needed nowadays. You know what I mean? Especially in this industry. For sure. That's what, that's what you got to do at this point. Absolutely. So, I mean, another thing I wanted to talk to you about is obviously smooch like this thing took off like crazy. So do you mind telling us what, exactly smooge is yeah for sure so that, that was something that, that came about because of the pandemic um you know early in the pandemic hard seltzer had really <clears throat> started to take over the market and had grown in a very high rate um and there was a lot of breweries getting into the seltzer game um doing them lots of different ways we had kind of 
gotten into that groove of the heavily fruited beers um, with fruit puree. You know, people really like them. I, I really enjoyed them. Um, Tommy's wife um, cannot cannot consume gluten at all. So we've always kind of been open-minded. Even at our bar, we have a lot of non-beer options because of that reason. So we kind of thought, how can we take this product and combine, you know, the heavily fruited beer and the seltzer, that culture that was blowing up at that point and combine those. So that's, we kind of came up with Smooch because of that. It was, it was something that Tommy kind of <clears throat> had the general idea for. I got to do a lot of the recipe development early on. And then we have a, a, another guy that we work with, Jacob, who is really, really talented on the engineering and figuring out how to actually do it. So the, with those three people combined, that's kind of where it came from. So we, we opened really with a pina colada and a strawberry banana were our kind of strong front runners. And they're just very heavily fruited. They drink like a hard fruit, uh, like, a, like a smoothie, basically. So we don't really even market it as seltzer because <clears throat> nine times out of ten, when you tell somebody it's a seltzer, they're like, I don't like seltzer. And it's like, <laughs> if you're speaking about White Claw at all in this situation, you're very far off of what it actually is. So we say a hard fruit smoothie is, is how we market it just to get people to understand actually what it is. Yeah. And I agree with that because I've definitely seen what I have seen as of late is that the seltzer market's definitely cooled off from what it was Yeah, and probably going about the route of that. It's a fruit smoothie, a hard fruit smoothie would be a much better approach nowadays. Cause I think you're right. Yeah. Cause I pick, think people would tag it as, Oh, it's white claw or it's, you know, one of those. So yeah, that, I mean, 100% that's what it is. And we kind of try to get it more into the RTD fields or get people to look at it more as an RTD. People are willing to spend money on canned cocktails in a way that they just aren't for hard seltzers. The perception of value there is different. So we're trying to get people to think of it as an RTD. Like it, it's a more expensive product than a seltzer for sure, but it's because it's a it's a much more quality ingredient. It's We're using real fruit puree. It's right. much more flavored and natural flavored than you know, what you're getting for a few bucks at the grocery store. So I got one last question for you, brother. So it seems like you guys were successful right out the gate. Like you were on USA Today's and Beer Advocate's Best New Breweries list right after you open. What do you think has been the key to your success as a brewery and as a company? Just being very, very open-minded and uh, very, very willing to be wrong about things. This is like me personally, being very willing to be wrong about things and being very willing to change. At the end of the day, you yourself have to make a call on what you know is best, and you can't get pulled in too many different directions. But I, I think we've always, you know, the, there's definitely a little bit of an old school mentality, um, even with like the German brewers, which not to throw shade at like German beer at all it's it is amazing beer but like this is the way it's done you don't do it any other way kind of right, thing right and it's just i we, we're never in that mindset uh whether it's brewing or food or how we run the front of the house it's like consistently be curious networking making friends you know talking to brewers like you guys going to your festival seeking you guys out at festivals seeking out other breweries talking to them about what they're doing how they're doing it and being like very open to that my way is just like not gospel there's uh, so many other ways to do things and uh, you kind of close yourself off if you think you found the perfect way as good as you are as a brewery like it's just really growing and being versatile especially in this industry where like people's tastes are changing so quickly right now compared to 10 years ago is a very different scene and 10 years from now is probably going to be a really different scene you just need to be very fluid in how you approach things you got to be very mobile like being able to change and shift and with the times and the changes in everybody's palates. 100%. And paying attention to those trends too. Like, you know, not locking yourself away from what's happening out in, in beer culture, or just drinking culture, hospitality in general. Yeah, I, I would agree with that 100%. Well, thank you very much, brother. This has been awesome. It's uh, good to finally have this recorded in uh on, on the books <laughs> yeah. Thanks, yeah. Nick. no of course i appreciate you guys Se- second time's a charm you know what i mean <laughs> yeah you got it <laughs> so thank you very much for your time and uh we appreciate you and uh good luck in 2024 rolling out uh simo and everything else you got going on brother thanks guys appreciate it You're listening to The Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. 
Our next guest is a journalist, a food and beer writer, and an old friend of ours. He was a features writer, food critic, and beer writer for St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He was a Metro writer and later food editor for the Miami Herald. He is now the Senior Director of Special Projects and Communications at the Philadelphia Inquirer. He contributed to the recently published book, This Is Your Song Too, Fish and Contemporary Jew- Jewish Identity. He wrote a chapter on what else? The food of fish. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Evan Ben. It is a absolute pleasure to have you on. I know we've been uh, wanting this to happen for Dying. a while. Dying. Yeah, I've been yeah. asking I, I our executive well. producer, Rocco, to bring Evan on. I'm not an executive, and yes, dying yes, yes. is a really strong statement. I, I've asked multiple times. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, that is I true. Mean, no. But he's yes. finally here. <laughs> he's here. Thank you so much. I, I, mean, I would take the invitation anytime. Yes, yes. So, I mean, for those that you don't know, Evan Ben used to be the man down here as far as writing. Head of FMB writing, Yes, right? exactly. At in the Miami, Miami Herald. And he really helped put us on the map. So we have a lot to... A lot of love. A lot of love and, and valuation for, for, you know, for, for Evan. Evan. So it is good to have you on the show. It gives me chills to hear you say that. I really appreciate it. I, I, did, I mean, I helped amplify what you were doing but your greatness was there you know that the content was there so thanks for saying that but it was it was the right place right time because you guys were going to explode no matter what thank you <laughs> thank you very much fun fact john's first like big interview right was with evan oh i was dying you uh dying. you brought me to uh uh where where was that studio that was the first time actually being on screen and you had me, where did we meet, Evan, that you did like a tasting? I think you were at our office in Doral, right? Yes. It's uh, like I think it was Doral, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously. Guys, right, Google, stage Google, fright. Google <laughs> I mean, that interview, oh, Evan, Ben, Jonathan terrible. Wakefield on YouTube. Terrible. It'll pop up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, uh, <laughs> that was back in the day. I mean, man, thinking about it, I mean, that was almost a decade ago. It's crazy. Right. So you were actually, during your first tour of duty at the Miami Herald, you were a Metro reporter covering crime, hurricanes, breaking news. Is that where you were really, you think you cut your teeth as a journalist, and is that something that you still draw upon today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I was a a news reporter before anything else, and I, I loved kind of the general assignment aspect of my job and not really kind of being pigeonholed into any one particular beat, be it you know, education or local government. I liked kind of doing a little bit of everything, um, you know, and that kind of allowed the the door to open for me into, into features and specifically food. And so, beer. Right. <laughs> <laughs> of course, we can't forget the beer because that was like where obviously we met. But then also I read that in 2009, you left Miami for St. Louis to become a features editor at Post-Dispatch. I mean – that must have been a bit of a culture shock, like, you know, between Miami to St. Louis. I mean, eventually you picked up the beer beat. I mean, first of all, I'm amazed that you even had a regular beer column. I mean, what was this beer scene like back in 2009 in St. Louis? And was that really the start of your love for craft beer and writing about it? Yes, yes. So we we left Miami. I left Miami for St. Louis in 2009. My wife, Terry, who you know. Is- yes, Absolutely. An OBGYN, so she did her medical residency at, at Wash U in St. Louis. So Ooh, okay. um, we were married and, and went there, and I was fortunate to get a, a features editing job at the St. Louis Post Dispatch. And literally the the week after I started, uh, so as you know, beer is like a big deal in St. Louis. It oh, was huge. the home of yeah. Anheuser Busch before yeah. before InBev bought them out, um, which was you know the year that we got there, the year before we got there. Um, so the Post-Dispatch had always treated beer as a beat, both, you know, as an entertainment beat, lifestyle, and also as business. Right. A week after I got there, the the columnist who had been writing, like, the fun part, the lifestyle business, the lifestyle entertainment side of, of beer left the paper, and, and they said, like, hey, kid, you want this beat? Um, and I really didn't know the first thing about beer. Like, I, I drank the same bad beer that we all do in college. And, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> But I said, sure. And I kind of treated it like I did any other beat where I, you know, I talked to bartenders and I talked to brewers and I talked to brewery owners and everyone who knew more about beer than I did. And I told their stories and, you know, just somewhere along the way it it clicked and talk about being right place, right time. I mean, so this is the year after InBev bought out Anheuser-Busch and all of a sudden people's, you know, 
AB was not sponsoring every little league team in town and they were not supporting every fundraiser and, and people's loyalties began to shift. And at the same time when, when craft breweries started taking started, off. Yeah. Started to hold. And yeah. So by the time we left four years later in 2013, there were 22 craft breweries within an hour drive of downtown St. Louis. When wow. we got there, there was one. Wow. I mean, so you actually saw the explosion happen and really when it took off there, especially like what I would consider the, home of American beer, pretty much, it being St. Louis. You know what I mean? To me, that's where it really all started with Anheuser. You know what I mean? So it's interesting to see that you were actually there from the jump. And 2009, I think, is really – I think it was a pretty much huge pivotal year because that's when Cigar City started. That's when a lot of other people jumped on board. I mean, I know – Let's see, you know, you had uh, Three Floyd. Some of those guys were already around a little bit before that. But I think that was really when it just, I mean, there was no ceiling. Was like there was no point. ceiling. No, it there was, was no ceiling. Point, I mean, yeah. it was like you, you, I watched and worked at Cigar City, and from 2009 till 2000, you know, 14, 15, there was no ceiling, and they were expanding by 200, 300, 400% every single year. And that's, that, that's unheard of in any kind of business. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's crazy. I think Cigar City started in 2009, you know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, uh, you know, driving up every other weekend to go buy beer you know, all the way from Miami, making eight-hour round trip just to go buy craft beer because it was really the only craft brewery in, in Florida at that time. So it's interesting. So you, you actually moved back in 2013. And before that, though, you actually wrote a book called Brew in the Lou. What was the book about and how was it received? So this column that I wrote for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch was called Hip Hops. And, it, you know, it, it kind of rose in popularity as the craft beer scene did. And, and I just stayed on top of that. And, and it went from a column in the newspaper to we developed a smartphone app also called Hip Hops, which, you know, had hundreds of my reviews of different beers. Wow. And, you could click and find where that beer is close to you. And it, that was really fun. And then we developed, a, a, we made a book called Brew in the Lou. And it was, um, you know, it's called Brew in the Lou, St. Louis Beer Culture, Past, Present, and Future. And it was just that. We kind of explored the the trajectory of beer in St. Louis from its its foundings and at, at Anheuser, with Anheuser and um, up to the, the craft beer boom. And um, it, it was received really well. It was a lot of fun. We had some um, book launch tours where we did like beer tours around the city. That's we awesome. We rented out big buses and went around to like five different places and they had tastings for us and we met the brewers and um, people got a copy of the book. During your time as food editor, do you think the quality of the food in Miami got better and better and better as we went on? Definitely. I think there was a, a, a new batch of, of homegrown chefs that kind of came out of the kitchens of, of Michael Schwartz and, right. and Michelle Bernstein and, and, and those great chefs. And, and I think there's still this influx of, of imports from New York that always, always seem to be popular in Miami, but I think there's more of a balance now. I also think a big, a big sea change was, was hospitality. I think a lot of, a lot of places in Miami that hadn't previously put a lot of weight and value into front of house training and, and hospitality really began to put focus on that because, you know, that's what it it takes to get a Michelin star or or beard awards so i think that's really raised the bar for from dining in in south florida and i'm also going to credit you with the first and only guy to ever actually have a craft beer panel at the south beach food and wine festival because you were the one to accomplish it and it's never been done since wine and food festival well south beach food and wine or whatever wine wine and food food okay because it started with wine if i'm not mistaken that's right. It was southern, you know, southern, oh, southern glaciers. It's it's uh, their baby, actually. And it was uh, the professor Barry Gump from the University of FIU. See, that was there you there. go. Yes. So you have a factoid too. <laughs> yeah, it was a one day a one day event, and they yep. moved it to South Beach, and now it's four days and multi million dollar affair. But they never focused on beer, and um, yeah, we we pushed for that, and and we got it. And thank you, thank you, Lee Schrager, for allowing it, and uh, and we should bring it back. I I. I I actually that was awesome. I, I, I think it's very educational. I, obviously, you don't grow something like craft beer in a city if there's no education. 
Because really before that, Miami was Budweiser, Heineken. Well, especially a city like this. You know what I mean? Uh, Polar. I mean, like stuff like that. But when you start putting craft beer in, like when we first started and we met you, it was really about education because people had no idea. But But if you don't continue that education and that furthering like notification that these breweries are still here and they're still making good beers and they're still making new beers and check them out if there's not that continuation of education then the the interest really just falls off yeah oh yeah i was gonna say i'm sure you still educate people behind the bar every day i mean i'm sure people walk in every day asking for a budweiser and and you have to be hospitable about pointing them in the right direction. A Corona with a shot of tequila is what right. we get here. Right. No, I mean, I mean, right, Rocco's. Not, we're, we're not going to take shots, but uh, I would have to say, I mean, here we th- go. Yeah, but without naming sit, names. No, 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 no. I, I, I mean, because no, you were the food editor, but then you moved to uh, what was the indulge, indulge, indulge the magazine, right, right, right. right. Yes, indulge yeah, yeah. I see, it. <laughs> I see it. Shrine, right. It, but after that, you obviously, you left for Philadelphia. And that void, I mean, it just created this ma- massive black hole. And to me, because I think you had such attention to detail, not only with restaurants, but everybody within that hospitality and service industry across you, the board, yeah. that it, it left this giant black hole that has never been filled. And I feel like the writing about food in Miami it's just as, not as the same. Whole, no, it's not the same. It's not the it's same. Not, there's the, you had relationships no. with people no. No, no, no. that really kind of molded that, that whole scene. And I'm not even talking about just us. I'm talking about for everybody. 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 You know I, mean? I think so. Evan's tearing up. Is he tearing <laughs> Thank up? you guys for saying that. It really means, tearing it means a lot to me. I, I mean, I, but I don't like the flip side, which I, I hear is that it has been great for you. And I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, you know, it's something you have to battle through. And that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about, education. And, and like when you stop educating people or, or writing and having twice a week releases about food sections, when you don't do that, I, I, think, it's, I think it has kind of fallen off, even with the induction of, of the Michelin star rating. But like to me, there's, there's less publication about the information of new restaurants and what's going on in the food scene nowadays than there used to be. I mean, well, there's also a lot of influence like you would know, um, you know, like all the all the New York, the the L.A., a ton of those restaurant groups are coming to Miami because for them it's an untapped um, market. And especially because a lot of the people that do go out to eat here want to be at a place like, you know, like a a Carbone or like, you know, I'm not saying that they're not good, but they want to be at a like very known spot. Right. We can. Right. So you work at a major metropolitan daily newspaper. I mean, everyone knows that the newspaper industry has undergone some major upheaval in the past few decades. How has it changed? How thing like what has changed on how things are covered? Are feature writers now judged by how many clicks their articles receive? And does that influence? Is is that the influence that makes the paper nowadays? Well, there's just fewer journalists to cover things, fewer news outlets, fewer reputable news outlets. Right. Um, right. So the, the you know the way the Inquirer is set up, we're owned by a nonprofit organization, the Lenfest Institute. Okay. Um, so our mandate is to is to break even each year. So we're not beholden to you know shareholders or, or Wall Street, which is which is a nice nice bit of breathing room, um, and it's it's different than most major news organizations. So no, I think the drive for journalists is always to tell great stories and to put great content, important content out there. Right. Um, you know, paid views and, and digital subscriptions are all you know gravy. That that's all you know. That's what we drive as our north star. We we need that to keep the lights on. Um, but I don't think anyone's chasing chasing clicks. At least at least not in our newsroom. Oh, so, that, that's good because that's what we heard down here. No, no, wait, wait. <laughs> that's what we heard I'll, down I'll here. Give you, I'll I'm give you a funny you. example. I'm just telling you. I listen to the Levitard show, right? And on Tuesdays, it's Greg Cody Tuesdays, which I'm sure you're very familiar with him. So they give him <laughs> shit all the time because he's like, read my article. And they tell him, oh, it's all for clicks. It's all for clicks. He just needs <laughs> clicks. He needs the, the yes. traffic to go in. So no, we've had other people down here tell us it's all about the clicks. Yeah. Trust me. Yes. I mean, no names to be mentioned, but yes, we were informed <laughs> oh boy. that it was all about the clicks. So, I mean, I, I'm glad to hear that it's not and that real reputable journalism is not about that. I mean, is the day of 
of paper newspaper just gone? I mean, is it now just all on phone? I mean, like Maria's still reading a hardcover book, which I love. I mean, actually having a book in hand to read to me is still an an amazing thing. There's nothing like it. I miss when my parents used to have used to get the Miami Herald and in Nuevo Herald. No, my grandparents. Home. Yeah, yeah. And I reading the comics, like touching the paper is so nostalgic to me and I miss seeing people do that. The written word. Yeah. On paper, mm. yeah. Even the smell, right? The smell yeah. of like ink on newsprint. It's yeah. it's nostalgic. It's comforting. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I I have I a question. I I, I often wondered if you know vinyl came back, like albums. Yeah. Would would newspapers ever come back in some capacity with like a younger generation who seeks like nostalgia and you know the tactile feeling of having a newspaper? What do you think? I just the, you know the the cost of yeah. the the cost of printing a daily newspaper is astronomical you know because think about it you have to print it you have to deliver it and get it in the hands of people and often before the sun comes up in the morning it's 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 a huge expense so you know embracing digital is is a business imperative i think i think so to answer your question i don't think the days of of daily newspapers printing yeah. a million copies are are, are coming back but you know, I think there's room for like niche publications. Like I just wrote an article about Miami's coffee scene for Drift magazine. That's a, a comes out twice a year. It, each each issue is gorgeous and it focuses on different cities' coffee coffee culture. And I hope I'm not spilling their beans, but the next no. one's going to be Miami. Mm-hmm. Coming nice. Up. See nice. what he did there. Nice, nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Um, so yeah, so I think I think there's room for like bespoke niche publications like that, but. I'm afraid not for the daily newspaper. Uh, yeah. No, I, I, I feel you on that one. But to highlight something else new and actually exciting, like you actually contributed to a new book. This is your song to fish and contemporary Jewish identity. Yes. What, what is the book about? And tell us about your, your chapter on the food of fish. The band. Talk about the band. Talk about the fish, right? All right. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so this is your song too. It, it explores the intersection of the rock band Fish yes. and Judaism, and um, the editors of it are both professors. Um, Oren is, at, I believe, in San Francisco, and Ariella is a professor at, at Temple, Rocco. Um, so she reached out to me in 2019 and um, and asked if I was interested in contributing a chapter about food. So I said, of course, and um, so so. For those who don't know, everyone knows fish, right? Yes. I, yeah, I, so. yes. I know that, but I don't think I've ever listened to a fish song. It's I very, you, it's, it's, it's kind of like culty, right? Like, like, oh, uh, the walking, yeah. um, the walking dead, the grateful dead. You're so young. The walking dead. No, I meant to say the <laughs> yeah, grateful, grateful dead. dead. Yes. Whatever. Yes. You know what I mean? They're jam bands. <laughs> jam bands. Yeah, jam bands. I didn't know they were, I didn't know they were Jewish though. That, that part is news to me. Yes. So two two out of Fish's four members are Jewish, and um, and you know, as a result, they, you know they incorporate some aspects of Judaism into their music. Sometimes they'll bust out like a traditional Jewish prayer in in song form at a concert. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it turns out that a lot of their following is Jewish, and um, you know, there's just some some similarities. So we explore that in in this book, and and my chapter specifically looks at the food of fish, which is which was really fun. That's awesome. That's awesome. So we, we've actually also had Tom Kehoe from Yards and Daniel Endicott from Forest and Maine on the show before. So a real question for me Great to you is, what are you drinking these days now up in a real beer town of Philadelphia? <laughs> is, is it? A, I mean, so I don't know what's happened to the, the beer. So why can't I just get a great IPA anymore? You know? <sighs> uh, well, I, cause, I mean, <laughs> as we had this conversation with John Hall, which – I actually, I would love to for them to meet. Yeah, that would be amazing. He is a he's also a journalist that writes for major publications, having to deal with the beverage industry, and he's also written co- cookbooks yeah. and stuff. Uh, that the industry as a whole is on kind of a downturn, just because there was such a massive explosion. And what we're seeing now is the days of us doing three hundred different new beers every year. Like that, that's gone. People don't want that anymore. So now what's actually pushing is our core beers. El Jefe, Hoffer Teacher, Amber Waves. We still make sours because we have to because that's who we are. We still do stouts. We still do hazy IPAs. But really people have gone back from all these 
wild and crazy culinary imaginative beers that we used to do. And it, and it, it did get out of hand. You know what I mean? It, it really got out of hand with what people were doing with it and how far it went with some of these things. People just want beer now. They want beer that tastes like beer, nothing overcomplicated. I mean, even the addition of the hard seltzers and the addition of non-alcoholic has definitely taken a chunk out of that. You know what I mean? It's and RTDs. Taken, oh, and right. And the ready-to-drink cocktails have taken a $5. chunk. So we're basically at a point now that we probably sell more Hoffer Teacher, Amber, uh, Hefe, than, and lagers than hazy IPAs ever. Well, we were just asked to brew Amber Waves again after not having brewed it for about five years because people want a beer. traditional... Beer. They want beer that tastes you know, like beer. So funny. Beer-looking beer, tasting beer. When I was writing about beer in St. Louis, I remember, I, I remember referring in a column once to an old Dennis Leary bit where he said he just wanted coffee-flavored coffee. He was so sick of all these different coffee flavors. <laughs> there you go. Just want coffee-flavored yeah. coffee, and, and I feel like that's, that's where the pendulum has swung with beer. People just want beer-flavored beer. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we are definitely at that moment in time with the, in, you know, with the industry. People are still drinking. Also, you have an other half in Philly, so you can get IPAs. Yes, yeah. And uh, <laughs> even Yards makes a great IPA. Yeah. Um, I always have Victory Prima pills in my fridge. I, I love it. I, I love I love like nice like hoppy pills, and that one just always tastes so so fresh and clean. Absolutely. Um, and there's a bar around here that that we love called Teresa's that has a great connection with Russian River. So they always have plenty oh. on fine pig on tap. So. Wow, you're very lucky. Pills, but I love to go over there and have a, a bowl of mussels and, and a Pliny. Oh, oh wait a second. Do they also get uh, Pliny the Younger when it comes out? They do, yes. Or is that uh, or is that Monks, monks in downtown? Monks, you know Monks? Too. Of course, of course you know Monks. Awesome. Monks is a... Is a, is a hey, first is off, a, that's an establishment. establishment. Don't forget, I, I've been into craft beer for... A long time. No, they were they were Philly. they were my client years ago when they opened. Yeah, yeah Monks yeah. is Monks yeah. is one of the few yeah. joints, and actually, it used to be like I think one of only two places in the country besides the tap room at Russian River to actually serve Plenty the Younger on really? draft. Yeah. Wow. yeah, it was yeah. crazy, and they used to get Lost Abbey too before it ever yeah. went out yeah. main, mainstream. So wow. it's crazy, man. Yeah, you got yeah. some great spots in Philly. Yeah, besides yeah, we're, all the we're terrible. Besides the terrible fans, I mean, you have great beer. <laughs> <It's bad football>. <laughs> <laughs> so, last question for you. It, it seems like being a journalist is a hard job, and you're going to make less working at a newspaper than for a hedge fund. But a free and independent press is one of the cornerstones of our democracy. What advice would you give someone starting out in the newspaper business today or that thought that this is something they would want to pursue? That's a great question. And thanks for asking it. Thanks for focusing so much on journalism. And I know, you know, it's an important part of my career, but, but society, as you just mentioned and and democracy. And there was a time when, you know, I love talking to students and, and aspiring journalists. And there was a time when I kind of shied away from it because I was down and I wasn't sure where, where the industry was going and if it, if it was going to be overtaken by hedge funds and influencers and, and I'm in a better place about it now. And um, I just think there's always going to be a need for people to tell stories. There's always going to be a need for people to communicate accurately, fairly and timely. And um, so I, I think, you know, at the Inquirer, we see this, this young class of journalists coming out who never intend or want to be a reporter or, a writer, you know, they're, they're specialists in social media or on audience development and newsletters, and, right. and they know how to get our content in front of people wherever they are. And that's just as valuable as someone who came out of journalism school with me with a notepad and pen and, and tried to copy down quotes. So my point is there's, there's definitely a future for, for journalism in whatever form it comes in, whether it's a printed newspaper or a digital right. message. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I just I think get out there, learn as many skills as possible, and don't just rely on writing, but know how to shoot video and edit audio, and 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 just be a master in as many things as possible. But but tell stories. 
always try to find like the story that's out there because there's one to be had. You know what I mean? Yeah. So everybody has. Yeah, one. everybody has a story. I mean, there's it, absolutely every day. There's something new <laughs> that can be wrote. And the thing that attracts me about the the food and beverage, you know, and hospitality profession, it's just it's so noble. You know, you're doing something that you could feel good about that that's making a difference in people's lives. And and I feel the same about journalism. I could never imagine working for a company that that made widgets. You know, it's just having <laughs> right. something that's that's mission driven to wake up to every day is really important. I like that you use that term because. I don't know if that term is used any longer as a widget, and I don't know. Business if, school. <laughs> right. Yeah. Make, making widgets. Yeah. I've never heard never, that before. You've never heard of widget? I, I don't know a lot of English, like, American sayings. I know Spanish so, Evan, sayings. What, like, what, all day What would your definition, of, like, well, for me, and when I was going through business school and master's uh, in accounting, it was like the widget. What, do you, what, what would your terms be for a widget? My gosh, I can't even picture what a widget would be. I'm just thinking of, like, a... I don't know. Which is a, which is a placeholder for like so, something that's being manufactured. It, it was always the, the question not was a, like, it's not okay. an actual thing. It's right, just right. A, pl- a verbal placeholder. Okay. But it was a, a, Lego, a Lego piece. You could say right, right. you could say we manufacture piece. widgets, you know, in a what? business uh, context, or you could say right. we manufacture thingamajiggies. Oh, <laughs> right. thingamajigs. The same kind so, of term. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. So, got right. it. That was always yeah. synonymous, and a word that was always synonymous with business. Yes, widgets. Widgets, right? Like, hey, like your company is going to do five, make five thousand widgets this year, and you want thirty percent gross next year. How many widgets should you make next year? So, right. <laughs> like, like I'm picturing like one, like one Lego piece, exactly. like something yeah, that exactly. Exactly. Yeah. on its yeah. own can't do anything, but needs more things to make it something. <laughs> so, this has been awesome, and yes. thank you very much. And can you please tell us when you're in town so we can hang out? Yes. Well, actually, I no, definitely I, go. actually, if I keep I, hearing uh, correctly, you. You're available for hire to write pieces as well. So, you know, like you got you got the wheels turning. So uh, I'm going to reach out to you. That's great. Please yeah. do. Um, yeah, my my brother who lives in Baltimore and, and sister in law got a place at like 57th and Collins Ooh. during the pandemic. So it's whenever it's open, I'd I'd love to come down. Okay. Absolutely. Well, well, let us know. Yeah, let us know. We'll, get, we'll grab it's a bite a to eat. Yeah, we can go look at the new Michelin star rated restaurants down there. <laughs> no, I'll take I'll take you somewhere else. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I want to go where you are. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you, Evan. It, this has been a pleasure, and uh, have a great 2024. I'm sure we will talk again, bef- you know, before the end of the year, and hopefully we'll see you before then. And too. say hi to Terry for us, yes, please. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. The pleasure was all mine, and um, send my love to your families. I can't wait to see you soon. Thank absolutely. you. Thank you, Evan. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Nick Panchame and Evan Ben, our host, Jonathan Wakefield, our producer, Rocco Riggio, and our editor, Brian O'Connell. Thanks for starting your weekend with us. You can catch us each Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real.